0: Good morning again, you guys. Um, I'm going to just read a short passage before Pastor BJ comes back up. This is from James 1, and this is, for, uh, this is from verses 13 to 15, um, speaking about trials and tribulations. Verse 13 says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Thanks, Christian. Eli, actually, would you put that slide up for that verse? This morning's uh, scripture reading actually has more significance to the sermon than normal. Normally, we do a scripture reading uh, beforehand to kind of prep us for um, what we're going to be talking on. Today, it's funny, this uh, pre-scripture reading could almost be where we're teaching from. And we could be using the Old Testament passage I'm going to use as the support material for it. Likewise, we can teach from the Old Testament (laughs) material that we're going to do today and use this as our support material for it. Um, they're oddly coinciding with each other in in very unique and interesting ways. Um, And so these words up here, specifically, I want you to note a few things. God does not tempt. It is our internal evil desires that tempts us. And when we are tempted and drawn away, we are enticed by our own evil desire. And it's that desire that conceives. It's what gives birth to sin. And when that sin is fully grown, that is what gives birth to death. That order of events, there's like an attraction to something, then there's the desire for that thing that comes from within. That leads to sin, and that sin, unchecked, unstopped, leads to death. That's the order that we're going in today. This sermon was actually inspired by um, a single phrase, a single phrase from a conference we went to recently. Um, Whenever I go to a conference and something sticks with me for for a long period of time, um, I try to find an excuse to bring it back up. Because if it's stuck with me, I'm assuming it's going to stick with somebody else too. And so recently a group of us had the opportunity to go to Theology in the Raw conference down in Boise. uh, And the conference was great. In fact, we loved it so much um, that we're talking about going back next year. It's actually a, a trip we plan on taking. And so this one thing that stuck in my mind, I wanted to bring up today. Um, I'll probably bring it up in Devo's sermons and conversations um, for many years. The thing that stuck with me the most, the the phrase that stuck with me came from um, a guy named Dr. Greg Coles. Maybe you recognize that name, maybe you don't. I did not until we were there. Greg Coles is the author um, who wrote Single Gay Christian, Single Gay Christian, He's a man who was raised in the church, gave his heart to the Lord at a young age. And then after realizing that God wasn't going to give him a desire for women, he decided to dedicate his days to living a single life for the Lord. It's actually what he chose to do. During a Q&A, someone asked if it was sin to just be attracted to someone of the same sex. They asked specifically, "Is it a sin for you to just be attracted to other men rather than women?" And Greg's answer is the inspiration for this morning's sermon. Now this is a rough paraphrase. Um, at, at, this was during a Q& A. Um, There's not like a manuscript that I can pull up and, and quote directly from. This is all coming from my memory. Um, and I don't remember it word for word, but he started by telling a room full of conservative pastors from Idaho that there were a lot of very attractive men in the room. (laughs) Watching the first three rows of men who could make eye contact with him very uncomfortably fidget in their chairs will probably stay with me for the rest of my life. (laughs) One, because it was funny, um, but two, because it was disconcerting. It was disconcerting to me. I'll explain why in a moment, but but first, Greg went on to explain that while they were all very attractive, he has not made any of them the object of his desire. You guys are very attractive. I have not made you the object of my desire. I want to say this twice because it's the main point of this sermon today. Greg was saying that he could acknowledge that someone was attractive without desiring after them. That if there was going to be sin, it would grow from that desire. Not the fact that someone happened to be attractive. It would grow from that desire. This makes perfect sense if you think it through, but I felt like there was a decent number of people in the crowd disagreeing with him. I don't feel like the consensus was all there. I feel like there was some disagreement, some discomfort in the crowd at the fact that he even said there were attractive men in the room. That's what I found to be a little disconcerting and here's why I think that people were uncomfortable with it because they were struggling with separating the two things in their mind and by two I mean attraction and desire they were struggling to separate attraction from desire if you can't separate those two you are always going to feel like you're sinning when someone attractive walks into the room always. If those two are the same thing, if somebody who's attractive is automatically somebody you desire after, then you're going to sin every time they walk in the room. Even worse, you're probably going to keep it a secret that you feel that way. You're probably going to hide it. No one knows if you find that person attractive or not. It's all up here. No one has to know. So what I, what I am saying, am I saying that sin doesn't start in the heart? That's a big question people might ask. People who struggle to separate the two will say, well, sin starts in the heart. It starts in here before it comes out. Am I saying that's not true? Not at all. Jesus said that to lust after another woman is to commit adultery. To have hate in your heart for a brother is to commit murder. What I'm saying is that I agree with Greg Coles, that you can be angry with a brother and not hate them. You can find a woman attractive and not lust after her. So the question is, how do you do that? You don't allow them to become the object of your desire. How do you do that? (laughs) You fill that space with something else or someone else. You fill that space with something else or someone else. So today what I really want to talk about is specifically about how attraction doesn't have to lead to desire. Desire for the wrong thing is sin. And if sin is allowed to grow and mature, it will lead to destruction. It just will. Now some of you are probably already on your way to the book of James, but I, think I already addressed that, so Stop. Actually, you can go there. We'll be in there for more. But, uh, but first, we're going to stop by um, a little story we all know from 2 Samuel. So you can flip over to Second Samuel chapter 11. This is where we'll be spending most of our time today. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Today, we'll be talking about that one time when David stayed home. King David stayed home. I love talking to a, a body of believers. Yeah, I heard like an audible murmur in the room. Like, this is so cool because you all know where this is going already. Like, most people in this room already know exactly where this is going. We're not going into uncharted territory. I'm not going to blow your minds with some fact today. Rather, we're taking a train ride through a wilderness we've been through before, but instead of looking at the sunset, we're going to look a little bit at the river, if you will. It's the beauty of going back over stories we've heard before, those one times when. Now, I don't know if we could talk about desire and not bring up David. If you think about it, out of all the kings throughout all written history, there are very few with as many strong desires as David. And unfortunately, as is the case with most of us, most of us have this problem, our greatest strength is often also our greatest weakness. And so, David, he had these wonderful desires, these great desires. In fact, he desired after God's own heart. It's pretty good. He also had 300 wives. So, <laughs> there's a problem there. So, on the good side, David's desires after God's own heart is the reason that God used him in such powerful ways. We see David dancing in the street out of his desire for the Lord, setting the example for an entire nation. In that moment, David's desire. For God saw him shed his kingly attire in order to humbly rejoice for the true king. That's beautiful. That's actually beautiful and inspiring for a king to shed those kingly garments to point at the true king. Especially coming from the man who killed his tens of thousands and Goliath being one of those thousands. David's strong desire also led him to some really, really wild sin. Really, really wild sin. Sin that we would have, here today, we literally would have handed David the death penalty for his sin. Death penalty. I'm not talking confession time in a counseling session. I'm talking we would send him to jail and ask for the death penalty. David, one of our favorite heroes, beloved by Jews and Christians alike, also happened to be the kind of guy that we would expect to see on some controversial Netflix documentary, the kind that only the vilest of people would find an excuse to defend. Go out there, nah, he's really a nice guy. And you're like, wow, you're messed up too, right? That's the kind of guy David was. It's easy to forget that for some reason. We hate Jeffrey Epstein... Because he used money, fame, and power to f- inflict the most vilest of sexual crimes on defenseless girls. We hate that. I think the only thing that would anger me more about Jeffrey's story is if he invoked the name of God first in his life. If he had claimed to be a, represent- a representative of God, then did all those things. Sin is so, so awful. So messed up and it's so, so much worse when it comes from people that claim the name of God. But like us. God who only offers goodness and righteousness and holiness to this world has never sinned. Somehow representing goodness with evil makes it makes that evil worse. It makes that evil worse. So today we're going to look at the dangers of having the object of our desire be a sinful thing. I'm not going to say desire is bad, desire is good. We should desire after God. We should desire after holiness, righteousness, all the things Jesus taught us to be desires after. We're going to talk about the dangers of having the object of our desire in here, in here, places nobody else sees, the dangers of that when it's a sinful thing. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 13. We're just going to start out with the first verse. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David stayed home. Did you notice he sent Joab. Sent Joab. When all the kings are marching out to war, David stayed home. David's men did a great job. Notice that, too. Victory, besieged, things were going very well. Maybe David realized that he wasn't needed. Or rather, maybe David knew he could have the excuse that he wasn't needed wasn't necessary for him to be in the fight. The most important thing to notice here um, for our perspective this morning is that David's desire used to be fully with his men. All throughout David's story, we see him fighting the battles that God had given him to fight, but not today. He'd rather dabble elsewhere, somewhere else. Whether intentional or not, the decision to not busy himself with what God had given him as his Portion. this would lead him to experiencing temptation due to feeling attracted while he was elsewhere. So what elsewhere would that be? How about an evening stroll on the rooftops? Verse two, one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing a very Beautiful woman and so here we have our first piece of this puzzle and we'll throw it up on screen for you and that is attraction first piece of the puzzle. There is attraction here it's not just that Bathsheba was there she was beautiful. Now before we really get into this I want to set one record straight from my childhood things I heard in the wrong the wrong context. I want to set this record straight nowhere in this passage does it say that Bathsheba was on the rooftops. And if you know what I'm talking about, maybe you disagree with me. But nowhere in this passage or anywhere else in scripture will you see that Bathsheba was on the rooftops. She could have been, but nowhere in this passage does it say that's the case. Nowhere in the whole story does scripture imply that she did anything wrong at all. She wasn't a temptress, according to the passage. In fact, Nathan refers to her as a lamb. Nathan refers to Bathsheba as a lamb. Well, what does a lamb signify in scripture? God sends Nathan to David to convict him, and he refers to Bathsheba as a lamb. She is also described as being led to the slaughter by corrupt authority. I have heard this taught more than once, by the way. More than once in my childhood, that Basiba was some sort of foxy temptress out there on the rooftops, hoping to grab David's gaze while the men were away. I don't see that in the text. In fact, all the evidence strongly points to her innocence and the devastation that unfolded afterwards. Strongly points to that. I'm not gonna spend a whole bunch of time on her story and how devastating it is, because that's not what the story's about. She's very briefly talked about for a reason. It's not what the story's about. But I, I grew up hearing that thats the woman's fault that is absolute garbage. Even if she was tempting him. Joseph didn't use that as an excuse. Yeah. So David is bored. He's restless and he has to fill his time with something. Notice it was in the evening. If he had been out to battle, what would he be doing in the evening? Super asleep, probably sore from head to toe. He's bored. He gets up. He would not have seen Bathsheba at all if he was on the battlefield doing what God called him to. But wait a minute. He could have been exposed to the same attraction even on the battlefield. Maybe even stronger temptation. I referenced Joseph. Potiphar's wife literally ran at him. And stole his clothing as he ran away. And he was doing exactly what God had called him to. Exactly what God had called him to. Joseph was obeying God to the letter. Temptation came for him anyways. David out in the field as they conquer cities. There would often be plenty of women around who no longer had a husband. Temptation does not just disappear because we're doing the right thing. We cannot build our lives of purity on the idea that we just won't get tempted. It doesn't work. All throughout scripture, we have proof that that is not how life works. And we know that from our own experiences. Temptation is not something we have to go after. It's all around us. The main key here is that we are still able and expected to resist temptation. That is what we are expected to do. That is what we have been empowered to do by the Holy Spirit. David's attraction did not have to become the object of his desire. This passage is not clear on whether he went up there innocently because he was restless and just bored and just innocent. Oopsie. Or if he was hoping to see something. All we know for sure is that he did go up there and temptation did happen. It would have been very quiet, all the men, all gone. It's just David, his many, many wives. Which, by by the way, for example, I said 300. That means they wouldn't even fit in this church. <laughs> David's wives, we would need the balcony, the classrooms, we, we'd be setting chairs outside, standing room only. If we, if Transform Ministries went to war with David's wives, we would be outnumbered two to one. We'd be back to back, like, like, sheesh, man, it's wild. Never mind Solomon. Good grief, be like Lord of the Rings out here, (laughs) men to arms. So all of David's men are gone. It's just David, his many wives and the wives of his men, the men that he loves. David happens to love his men, and I think this is an important detail to bring up. David loves his men dearly. David and his men, it's a classic combo. They ran from Saul together. They fought crazy battles together. They had victories together. David and his men, they loved each other. There was so much, so much care for each other. I want to skip over that detail because that is the detail that actually saddens and sobers me the most about this story. David didn't hate Uriah. David loved Uriah. Desire. So David is now squarely placed in the center of temptation. We can't say from the text that this was his intention. In, in fact, it seems more likely that it was unintentional. Whatever the case is, he's squarely there. Isolation, separation, and not doing what God has called us to, whether intentional or not, puts us right in the middle of temptation. It's exactly what it does. It puts us in this dangerous position and so set before him is a strong temptation it's not just that she happens to be exceedingly beautiful and totally enclothed but also with everyone out to battle there's plenty of space and time for secrecy there is plenty of opportunity to hide what he was going to do it's weird preaching the sermon because um There's so many things that I can relate to on a personal level. This isn't one of them. I've always been faithful to my wife. And I'm aware of the fact that if there's anybody in here who's experienced the other side of this, that this can be incredibly difficult, um, devastating words to read. And um, I'm aware of how it can sound coming from up here in the pulpit. And so I want to encourage you with with this. The sermon isn't just about unfaithfulness to a wife. The sermon is about desire. That can be anything. That can be literally anything that is sin. In my youth, I grew up in a generation where our parents did not know what the internet really was. Most of my life, we didn't have a computer. Rich people had those. And so they didn't really understand the dangers of things like pornography. You didn't have to worry about that unless there was a magazine under your kid's bed or something that they shouldn't have gotten into. And they wouldn't be able to get that unless they had money, and it was like this harder thing to come by. And so my whole generation grew up being attracted to this mysterious thing called pornography. And I was pulled into that same wicked evil sin. And it was not something I went looking for. It was not something my friends went looking for. It was not something my parents knew how to protect me from. This is the most common desire that runs rampant in our households. Not a whole lot of us will cheat on our spouse. But there are statistics that are staggering when it comes to pornography. And the TV shows that we're watching is drawing us all towards this as well. See, for me, what what happened was I had no idea what I was doing. I was a sheltered child whose parents loved the Lord, loved me, and tried very careful to protect me from the world. But I stumbled across this without their knowledge. And it became my secret. And it bit at me and it chewed at me. And it burned this desire and it became this thing that I would focus on and fester on and grow in. And this sin, this little, this little, this attraction, which that's all it had to be, became a desire as it sat right here. And it grew and it grew and praise God, he brought along another young man, a dear friend of mine, to catch me in that sin and to confront me with it face-to-face. Why am I saying all this? Trust me, I don't want to. There are very few pastors who will ever admit to having that in their past. And I don't say that as a point of pride, but as a acknowledgement of the wickedness of it. The reason why I say this today is because there are people in this room who believe one of two evil things. One That everybody does it. It's not true. It's not true. That is not something you have to live your life for. Not even close. I know people who have never even touched it. And I'm one of those people who got out of it. And there are people in here who believe that if it was found out that they had this in their life, They would be hated, shunned, looked down upon. And at least for my part, I say all of this to show you that that's not true. I would sit down with anybody in this room who is struggling with this right now, hear you, love on you, encourage you, walk with you in a heartbeat, and it would be my pleasure and my joy. I say this all so that you would feel comfortable dealing with it rather than hiding it. Do what I didn't do. Take care of it before you're caught with it. Here in the story, that was just a rabbit trail. (laughs) Here back into the story, some people are like, oh, that's why you didn't want to preach this sermon today. Yeah, yeah. Back in the story, this is where we start to see David do exactly what I was talking about. He starts making this woman the object of his desire. We leave from attraction. It's not Bathsheba's fault. She's attractive. Okay. We leave from attraction and we move into desire at this point. How does that happen? He inquires about her. So David sent someone to inquire in verse three, David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah, the Hethite. That's the confirmation of who she is right there. She is not available to him, but at this point we see that he has been dwelling on her. That's where his mind has been. And at this point, David's desire for Bathsheba has overcome his desire for God's own heart. His desire for Bathsheba has grown bigger than his desire for God's own heart, the thing that he was literally picked for, the thing he was known for. So that desire does indeed conceive in verse four says, David sent messengers to get her. And when she had come to him, he slept with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. So we can see this bathing that she was doing um, probably was connected. When David saw her, was probably connected to this purifying herself for her uncleanness, which was a ritual that you would do, the Jews would do um, once a month. You know why. Specifically, between her and the Lord, this was an honoring thing for her to the Lord to say, God has blessed me with fertility. It was it a was whole thing. This was a ritual cleansing that she was doing. She was not up on the rooftop trying to grab someone's attention. Doesn't say that anywhere in the text. So she conceives and sends word to David. It says, I am pregnant. So David is faced with his sin coming into the light, and he is given the opportunity. Here's, here's opportunity right here. Here's where, here's where he's not even the one who has to try. It's being brought to light. He's given the opportunity to cut off the growth. Right here, right now. Or he's being given the opportunity to encourage the growth. Spoiler alert, his sin becomes fully grown. His sin becomes fully grown. He does not cut off the growth. He does not walk away from his sin and expose, well, he walks away. He doesn't expose his sin. He doesn't come clean. He allows it to grow. Verse 6, so David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. This is creepy. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down into the house. You can see the thoughts of David as he's sitting here with Uriah, who he loves, who has been faithful to him, somebody he cares about, and he is plotting and planning to deceive someone he loves. Because desire has grown so strong in him that he would plot and plan for the ruin of someone he loves. I'm not going to go through the whole story today. We know the story. David is unable to secretly get Uriah to cover up his sin. David eventually has Uriah murdered which is without a doubt the cause of David's deepest pain later in life. David doesn't get to avoid earthly consequences because of God's grace for this. We don't avoid the consequences of our sin just because God is good. The growth of sin is clearly seen. David's desire did conceive. He, His sin makes it to full maturity, and his attempts at a clean cover-up Fail, leading to a more drastic cover-up, ending in the murder of someone that he actually cares about. That's how far our evil desires can take us. I want to take note of the fact that there are actually two desires in this story. From from the same person, from David, there are two desires in this story. One that, that could happen, whether you want it to or not, and one that is... Fully the direct fault of David's, David's evil action. Actually, I'm not going to say it could happen whether you want it to or not. You can be attracted whether you like it or not. You don't have to turn that into your desire, though. He could have gone off to war. The first one is the obvious one. David's desire is for Bathsheba. His attraction did not have to turn into Desire. Other people do not magically become ugly when we get married. <laughs> but we act like they do. <laughs> if my wife says, "Do you think that woman's beautiful?" What am I gonna say? What well, you get a woman? Oh, where? Huh? What? No, she's ugly. Don't worry about it. We act like that. We need to come to grips with the reality that we are living with attraction around us and that internal desires can take root. The second desire in this story is where sin gets to fully grow. It's where sin gets to go completely haywire and leads to destruction. And that second desire in this story is the desire to not get caught. Not get caught. And so here we come down to, again, this is the full reason why I, why I opened up about my personal struggles when I was a young man. This is why I opened up about that. Because the desire to not get caught was based off the fact that I thought that I was some sort of useless, worthless, disgusting piece of garbage that no one and no God could ever love ever again. That's how I felt. And the reason why I felt that was because everybody around me acted like only the sick and depraved and disgusting people would ever make that kind of a mistake. And so as a young man, I believe, wow, I'm one of those. I'm one of those. I don't have a shot. I've already thrown my life away. It's ruined. All these super spiritual people are correct. There's no chance for me now. It's over. And so... Just like David, I relate to this the desire to not get caught. I want to encourage a desire in everybody in this room right now not to not get caught, but to just be open, honest, and deal with stuff. To let go of the pride, to let go of the pretense. God knew. While we were yet sinners, he was going to die for us. And then he did it because he desires you, fully desires you. While you were yet sinners, he fully desires you and me. The day I realized that, the gospel took on a whole new light. That's the good that God can work out of out of awful sin is that the, the gospel has this ability to grow. He does that for, you don't need to sin for the gospel to grow, but God will take anything and use it for our good. And so he, he sees that sin, he says, you know what? You came back to me. I'm gonna take that and, and, and bless you with a bigger understanding of my grace. I forgave you because I love you. I desire you. my goal within the youth ministry and, and within Transform as a whole is to be, um, and you're going to laugh at this because I'm just not an approachable guy, and I don't know why. I think it's because I was weird and raised off-grid as a homeschooler and stuff, but like somehow I'm like not that approachable. I don't know what it is, but that's my goal in youth group anyways. So far, failing, but... My, <laughs> My goal is to be so open and honest about the reality of sin that nobody feels like I'm that super spiritual holy guy who's going to look down on you the moment you fail. I want to chat with people about this stuff. There are resources for this kind of stuff. We're a family, we're supposed to pull each other out of this muck. There were a lot of places that David could have repented, saved lives, prevented great shame and great sorrow. The truth of that is that it's still true today. Today, every moment that we're walking through life with sin in our lives, we have opportunity after opportunity after moment after moment. We have less life and breath given to us. It's the opportunity to repent. Turn around and not allow this wicked sin thing to grow bigger. It doesn't have to get bigger. You guys, it has been more than a a joy and an honor, a pleasure to cover for Mike these last two weeks. Absolutely love your kids, but there is something special about spending time together in the Word as a whole church body, as adults. We've seen the real world, you and I have. We've seen what's out there. We understand it. Worship team, you can come on back up. And we are the ones that are setting the example for the youth. We get to come in here together, pump each other up, encourage each other, pray with each other, stand by each other, walk with each other, All for the singular purpose of representing Christ to the next generation. To inspire the young men and women coming up behind us. To look at the next generation and say, I I got to here and, and realized that God was good. Then I started going up. I don't want them to get all the way out to here before they start going up. I want them, you know, just right here. Stop right there. Go, up. go up now. We do that as a church. These kids are our kids. This children's ministry is our—it's our kids down there. These teens are our teens. It's on us to be a witness to them of humility, of God's grace, a representation of Jesus and His goodness. His goodness, not ours. Lord I thank you for sustaining me throughout this week you are the supply any week I don't lean on you is a disaster each day I don't lean on you is a disaster I become more and more aware of that in my older older age Lord, I pray that um, this morning we would, if anything, be inspired by the depth of your grace, how incredibly great you are, to come to us, to redeem us. That we would understand the depths of our own wickedness so that we can inspire the next generation to step further than we did. Jesus, you are our perfect representation. Teach us, lead us, guide us. Holy Spirit, empower us to be that representation, that humble representation as a living sacrifice for this next generation. Be honored by our worship this morning. You're so worthy of it every week, every day. Thank you for redeeming us. We praise you and honor you. your name, amen.